Hello, and welcome to The Space Above Us. Episode 74, Space Shuttle Flight 7, STS-7. Say 7 for the camera. Last time, we talked about STS-6, the first flight of OV-099 Space Shuttle Challenger. After the deployment of the first satellite in the Tracking and Data Relay Satellite System, TDRS-A, and the first extravehicular activity of the shuttle era, Challenger landed at Edwards Air Force Base, capping off a successful first mission. Today, we'll be talking about the seventh flight of the space shuttle and the second flight of Challenger, STS-7. As NASA gained more experience and the test flights faded further and further into the rearview mirror, it's clear that the folks operating the space shuttle were getting more and more comfortable with the system. I say that because the missions were getting increasingly complex and increasingly ambitious. With the shuttle, it can be sometimes a little tough to fit each flight into a bigger picture. Back in the Apollo days, it was easy to keep the ultimate goal of a lunar landing in mind and say, here's the flight where we learned how to fly the LEM, or here's the flight where we learned how to dock. With the shuttle, at least until we get to the ISS, each mission sort of stands on its own. Rather than building towards something explicit, we're incrementally improving our knowledge and experience level, leading to more and more capable flights. This flight will feature two ComSat deployments, an unusual experiment that will depart the orbiter only to be retrieved later, and the usual slew of scientific experiments. And adding a new dimension to the mission was a historical first, the flight of America's first woman astronaut, Sally Ride. Let's get into it. The first payload on the manifest was Telesat's Anik C-2. Based on a standard spacecraft bus from Hughes, this was a communications satellite that would ride a PAM-D upper stage to geostationary transfer orbit. Once there, it would use specially shaped beams to service remote areas of Canada with television and communications. If this all sounds extremely familiar, it's because it's almost the exact same story as Annex C-3, another Telsat spacecraft that rode aboard STS-5. From what I can tell, this is essentially the exact same spacecraft doing the exact same thing for the exact same company. But with two satellites, they get twice the bandwidth, so that's nice. Also riding in the back of the payload bay was Palapa B-1, another commsat based on the same spacecraft bus as Annex C-2. Palapa B-1, and apologies if I'm not pronouncing that correctly, was the first in the B series of communication satellites that would primarily service Indonesia. The B-series would replace the A-series and was twice as big and four times as powerful. Since Indonesia has something like 17,000 islands, communications infrastructure can be a little tricky. This makes the prospect of a small fleet of commsats really appealing. Rather than endless underwater cables and microwave relays, you can just use a few powerful commsats and your entire country is good to go. In addition to connecting Indonesia, the spacecraft would also service the Philippines, Thailand, Malaysia, Singapore, and Papua New Guinea. Because why not? Comsats are great and all, but they're not the most exciting payloads. You open the sun shield, spin up the spacecraft, pop the explosive bolts, and send it on its way. This next payload is a little different. Since the space shuttle was going to be doing a whole bunch of satellite retrieval and repair missions, and since NASA still had an eye on assembling a future space station, it was important to understand how the shuttle handled orbital rendezvous and how rendezvous targets handled the shuttle. Enter SPAS-01. 
Rendezvous is one of these things that doesn't even really sound all that easy on paper. And when you bring it into the real world, there are a lot more messy little side details that need to be accounted for. Can the crew adequately keep an eye on the target during proximity operations? What sort of plume impingement can be expected from the orbiter, and what will its effects be? That is, will the big attitude control thrusters all around the shuttle blast the target as they approach, or maybe coat them in exhaust? Can the shuttle approach in a predictable manner, or will coupled rotation and translation lead to an uneven trajectory? These are the sorts of questions that SPAS-01, or Shuttle Pallet Satellite-01, was going to answer. The payload itself was a relatively small, free-flying spacecraft about 16 feet across, 11 feet high, and 5 feet long. It was basically a big white box about the size of an SUV, with a bunch of smaller white boxes and cylinders attached to it, and a weird triangle hanging off the bottom, which is where about half of the 11-foot height comes from. On board were a bunch of experiments and cameras. Six experiments from Germany, who were running the SPAS program, two other European experiments, and then three experiments and the cameras from NASA. The experiments could be run while in the payload bay, but the really exciting stuff would be when they released SPAS-01 from the robot arm. We'll get to that in a little bit. Another notable first for this mission was the plan to land at the shuttle landing facility at the Kennedy Space Center. This 15,000-foot-long runway is one of the longest in the world, and would enable the orbiter to land at its home base. This not only saved NASA the expense of ferrying the shuttle from California to Florida on the back of the shuttle carrier aircraft, but it also saved a lot of time. With the promise of monthly flights tantalizingly close, any time shaved off of an orbiter's turnaround was a worthwhile effort. We'll talk a little more about the shuttle landing facility later. Flying STS-7 would be a crew of five, adding one more historical first to the flight. While five people had been in space at the same time, they had never launched all on the same spacecraft. Flying as commander would be Bob Crippen. We last saw Cripp riding shotgun on STS-1 as pilot alongside John Young. This was his second of four flights. Flying as pilot on this mission was Rick Hawk. Frederick Hawk was born on April 11, 1941 in Long Beach, California. Hawk participated in Navy ROTC during college, so after graduating, he served on the USS Warrington, a destroyer ship. After that, he attended the U.S. Naval Postgraduate School studying math and physics. Always a good choice. He picked up a master's degree in nuclear engineering from MIT in 1966. For the next 12 years, he continued to serve in the Navy in a variety of roles, ranging from 114 combat and combat support missions to flying as a test pilot. He, along with 34 of his colleagues, joined NASA in 1978 as the first class of shuttle astronauts. This is his first of three missions. Joining Crippen and Hawk would be a crew of three mission specialists. Mission Specialist 1, who would launch in the back right of the flight deck and land down on the mid-deck, was John Fabian. John Fabian was born on January 28, 1939, in Goose Creek, Texas. Fabian earned a bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering from Washington State University before joining up with the Air Force, serving as an aeronautics engineer at the Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton, Ohio. Along the way, he earned a master's degree in aerospace engineering from the Air Force Institute of Technology. He spent five years flying military cargo planes around Southeast Asia before coming home, earning a doctorate in aeronautics and astronautics from the University of Washington 
and being selected as an astronaut in 1978. This is his first of two flights. Mission Specialist 2, who would ride in the back middle of the flight deck for ascent and entry, was Sally Ride. Sally Ride was born on May 26, 1951 in Los Angeles, California. Ride attended Stanford University, where she earned a bachelor's degree in English, a master's degree in physics, and a doctorate in physics with a focus on astrophysics and lasers, all over the course of 10 years. The same year that she completed her doctorate, 1978, she was scooped up as part of astronaut group 8, the 35 New Guys. Unlike some of the folks we talked about in the past, Ride did not have a burning desire to be an astronaut for years and years. She heard about NASA's recruitment drive for shuttle astronauts during her time at Stanford and thought spaceflight would be interesting and applied. And it's a good thing that she did. In the five years between her selection and first flight, Ride helped to develop the remote manipulator system, the shuttle's robotic arm, becoming one of the experts among the astronaut corps. With this mission, she became the first American woman to fly in space, a notable and sadly belated historical milestone. And though it wasn't known at the time, the world would later learn that she was also the first gay person to fly in space. This is her first of two space flights. And last but not least, Mission Specialist 3, Norman Thaggard, who would fly on the mid-deck during ascent and the flight deck during entry. Norman Thaggard was born on July 3, 1943 in Mariana, Florida. Thaggard earned bachelor's and master's degrees in engineering science from Florida State University before going on to medical school, receiving his Doctor of Medicine degree from the University of Texas in 1977. Somehow, in the middle of all that time in school, he also joined the Marine Corps, flying 163 combat missions over Vietnam. Along with Fabian and Ride, Thaggard joined NASA in 1978. He was a late addition to the crew of STS-7 when Mission Commander Crippen suggested that they take advantage of the small crew size and bring along a doctor who could help study the omnipresent problem of space sickness. Thaggard is going to be around for a while, with this being his first of five space flights, including spending over 100 days on the Russian space station Mir. One interesting thing to note about this mission is that it's the first to fly crew members from the 1978 group of astronauts. Up until this point, everyone who flew on the shuttle had been around since the Apollo and Skylab days, or in the case of John Young, Gemini. But with this flight, the first wave of new rookies started to roll in. While there was clearly a lot of interesting stuff going on with this flight, the primary focus from the general public was, of course, on Sally Ride. Mindful of her status as the first American woman to fly in space, NASA made special efforts to ensure that the intense press attention would not distract Ride or the rest of the crew from their rigorous training. She was made available for some interviews, but was mostly kept out of the spotlight until after the successful completion of the mission. Even with five years at NASA already under her belt, there was a lot to learn for STS-7, so Ride needed to be allowed to train in peace. Reading about the interviews and press conferences that did happen, I can't help but shake my head at how absurd some of the questions were. At one point, Ride was asked if she thought she would cry in space. Ride's exasperated response was, Why doesn't anyone ever ask Rick those questions? Not all attention was external either. NASA engineers had no experience with women astronauts. And while seemingly well-meaning, I cringe at some of their actions as told in the oral histories. 
At one point, Sally Ride was asked if 100 tampons would be enough for the six-day mission. And I can only imagine Dr. Ride's expression when she was presented with a special shuttle-approved makeup kit. She later said that it was the last thing in the world that she wanted to spend her time training on. Though I guess I do have to give NASA a little bit of credit on that last one, since fellow TFNG astronaut Rhea Seddon said she liked having the option and did use the kit on her flights. I think hearing stories like this today, it's easy to sort of chuckle at how almost cartoonishly ridiculous they are. But I think it also speaks to just how tenacious these early women astronauts had to be. There's no doubt that the NASA they entered was a man's world. And not only a world run by men, but by many men who had never worked with women in a professional setting before. Ever. They endured slights like this, both unintentional and intentional, and stuck it out proving to their colleagues and the rest of the world that they had every bit as much of the right stuff as the men did. Challenger launched on its second flight right on time at 7.33 a.m. on June 18, 1983, kicking off an uneventful ascent. One of the first tasks for the shuttle astronauts after main engine cutoff was to scramble out of their seats and get some photos of the external tank, which would still be fairly close during this part of the mission. These photos were later analyzed to give insight into the performance of the tank and could be a heads up that something might be wrong with the orbiter. This particular tank was the last of its kind, the last heavyweight tanks that had been used on all previous flights other than STS-6. From this point on, a lighter weight tank would be flown. But the real reason I'm telling you about this tank is that right below the intertank, at the base of the bipod orbiter mount, was a white patch of foam. It was white because a chunk of the light insulating foam had torn off the bipod ramp during ascent, leaving the foam beneath exposed. This, of course, would be the proximate cause of the Columbia accident 20 years later. I bring it up because I think it's worth noting that this is only the seventh launch of the shuttle, and we've already seen the seeds of the two accidents that will claim both Challenger and Columbia. But that is a topic for another day. The first big task of the mission was to deploy the Annex C2 communications satellite, just a few hours after arriving in orbit. I'd take you through the play-by-play, but since it's essentially exactly the same as the Annex C3 deployment from two missions ago, I'm just going to refer you to the STS-5 episode. And you know what? It turns out that with the same spacecraft bus and the same deployment mechanism, the Palapa B1 deployment two days later was similarly trouble-free. Both spacecraft rode their PAM-D upper stages up to the geostationary ring where they were able to carry out their missions. The next big highlight was the deployment of SPAS-01 on day 3. Again, SPAS-01 is a free-flying experiment that I've decided is roughly the size of an SUV. With mission specialist ride at the controls of the remote manipulator system, SPAS-01 was raised out of the payload bay, the end effector released it, and then backed away. Once clear of the spacecraft, the shuttle thrusters were fired to move it down and ahead in its orbit. And since we're in the counterintuitive world of orbital mechanics, that means that the thrusters were fired towards the direction both vehicles were traveling. That caused Challenger to slightly slow down, which meant that it went lower, which meant that it went faster, which meant that it moved ahead in the orbit. It's sort of tough to explain the relative motion in an audio-only medium, but it's not really important. Challenger moved away. 
Challenger then fired the thrusters again, this time in the same direction that it was traveling, which caused the orbiter to start moving up again, relative to Spaz. And about three hours after dropping the satellite off, Challenger drifted onto SPA-01's V-bar, about 300 meters away. The V in V-bar stands for velocity, and you can imagine it as a line extending out of the target along the direction in which it's moving. For visual, you can almost imagine the line down the center of the highway as being the V-bar for your car. Put another way, Challenger was now in the same orbit as SPAS-01 again, but 300 meters down the road. Over the next two and a half hours, a series of small burns caused Challenger to hop along SPAS-01's V-bar, slowly moving closer and closer, before finally, Ride was again able to grapple the spacecraft using the robot arm. Easy peasy. Well, maybe not so easy, but the crew sure makes it seem that way. The next day, it was time to do it again, but this time taking a different approach. For this run, Challenger scooted ahead on the V-bar, then swooped up, back towards Spas, but moving upward, until it was about 60 meters directly above it. It then moved down, and Ride again grappled the spacecraft using the remote manipulator system. The evaluation proved that the shuttle could handle proximity operations with no issues. It helped ground crews better understand the impact, literally, of the attitude control thrusters on the rendezvous target. And it showed that the RMS could be used to grapple free-flying 5,000-pound targets in space, even with a slight rotation applied to it. What this all amounted to was a major step forward and an important capability for the shuttle. If the shuttle was to be the workhorse spacecraft that everyone hoped, then operations like this needed to be no big deal. When we eventually get to stuff like the Hubble servicing missions down the road, there will be a lot of complicated mission-specific stuff to consider. It was important that actually getting to Hubble and grabbing onto it could be counted on as drama-free. I don't know much about the results of the experiments on board SPAS, but I can tell you that you've almost certainly seen some of the products of this little exercise, whether you realized it or not. That's because one of the late additions to the payload were some nice cameras, which were left running throughout the proximity operations. What resulted were the first ever pictures of the orbiter in orbit. Well, I guess that's actually not quite true, since ground-based observatories had taken photos of the spacecraft before. Alright, the first ever pictures of the orbiter as seen from another spacecraft. Well, I guess that's not quite true either, since we learned earlier that there were all sorts of sneaky photos taken with other <clears throat> national assets. So let's call them the first ever pictures of the orbiter taken from space that we get to see. And the shots are pretty spectacular, even today when just about everyone's seen a picture of the space shuttle in space. But I can't imagine how breathtaking they must have been to the men and women of NASA in the early 1980s. Mindful of the significance of the photos, the STS-7 crew had a special treat up their sleeves. Quietly working off the books, Ride, Crippen, and others came up with a plan to place the remote manipulator system in a very specific configuration as the photos were taken. And that's why, if you look at the SPAS-01 photos of STS-7 today, you will see that the robotic arm is forming a nice, big 7. Challenger was posing for the camera. There's usually a number of experiments and tests that I don't bother mentioning on every flight, just so we don't get completely bogged down in the details. But one that I couldn't resist mentioning on this flight was a test to reduce the cabin pressure to 10.2 pounds per square inch. 
I guess the folks in 1983 heard me wondering out loud about the 14.7 PSI used in the cabin normally and decided to throw me a curveball. The test went just fine, but I did think that it was interesting that it caused the avionics to heat up by about 10 degrees Fahrenheit. Thinner air means less air to carry away heat, so it takes a little more effort to cool stuff down. Will they decide to stick with 10.2 PSI in the future? Well, I'll have to just keep reading, and you'll just have to keep listening to find out. When landing day rolled around and the crew strapped into their seats, their destination was someplace new, the Kennedy Space Center. As I mentioned earlier, the shuttle landing facility is a massive runway built to tight tolerances in order to accommodate the orbiter on its one and only landing attempt. I also mentioned that I'd be talking more about it later, which is true, since despite what the mission plan said, Challenger would not be going to Florida today. Weather at the Cape was unacceptable for landing, so the crew went around for one more orbit. But when the weather was still unacceptable, the landing site was changed back to good old Edwards Air Force Base in sunny California. It may be a hassle to get the shuttle back, but you can usually count on nice clear weather there. After 6 days, 2 hours, 23 minutes, and 59 seconds, Challenger touched down at Edwards, its second flight in the books. STS-7 will always be known as a milestone mission. Not for its technical achievements, though they were considerable, but for something that is hardly worth special notice today. The sex of one of the crew members. Sally Ride broke the glass Carmen line for NASA and proved, as if there could ever be any doubt, that female astronauts belonged in space. And that's something worth celebrating. Next time, get your long exposure cameras ready because Challenger is going to light up the Florida landscape with the shuttle's first night launch. Ad Astra, catch you on the next pass. <laughs>